We've been looking at the seed promise from Genesis 3.15, where God promised to give a seed to the woman who was going to crush the head of the serpent. We have then seen how that seed promise is carried through to Abraham. We have then seen how it is fulfilled in God's promise that he gives to David. And this morning, we're going to see the ultimate fulfillment of that in the life of Mary. Mary is the woman to whom God promised in Genesis 3.15 that her seed would come to crush the head of the evil one and redeem a people. And so we're looking this morning at Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 22. And as usual, I know that you're going to find it helpful to have your own copy of Scripture open and to be reading along with me. Here, as Luke is tracing... These accounts, and I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but Luke gives far more attention to the nativity accounts of Jesus, and especially those around the songs of the nativity, because Luke had no doubt when he put together his very orderly account about the coming of Christ, his well-researched account, he had consulted with Mary. And so um, in church history, theologians are going to note that Luke's gospel, especially the beginning, is going to give us an eyewitness account from Mary herself, all the things that happened from the day that the angel appeared to her through the upbringing of Christ when he was 12 in the temple. Um, and that's why Luke focuses in a special way on these accounts that are unique to Luke's gospel. And here, notice Jesus is now eight days old. And Luke writes, And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. This man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him, according to the custom of the law. He took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him, and Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was well advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin. And then as a widow until she was 84, she did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day, and coming up at the very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God 
endures forever. Well, I am sure that all of us have at some point or time in our life had one of those what people mistakenly call chance encounters where we are in just the right place at just the right time and we meet just the right person. For some of us, that is that time when we met our spouse. If we were just five minutes earlier or if we were just five minutes later, we would not have met them. For others, it is those times where they met just the right person for a business venture that if they had been just a little bit earlier or a little bit later, that never would have happened. And their lives and their experiences and our lives and experiences are shaped by those quote-unquote chance encounters. And yet, if we're Christians, we know that there is no such thing as a chance encounter. Neither do we believe in fatalism, which is a pagan philosophy, nor do we believe in just uh, random, random chance happenings. We believe that God, as we have been seeing over the last several weeks, is sovereign over every single thing in the universe and over every single event. And that comes so clearly here in Luke chapter 2, verses 22 to 38. We see this convergence of Mary bringing the baby Jesus into the temple to do for him according to the custom of the law, and the aged Simeon and the aged Anna coming into the temple at that time, and Joseph and Mary and the baby and Simeon and Anna, and everything converging, as Luke says, at that very hour. And what we're going to see this morning is that God is superintending all of these things. And in a very real sense, he is bringing all of redemptive history into focus at that place and at that time for Mary and for us. Now, as we are considering this series on the seed promise and now that Mary has had that, pro that promise fulfilled, and she is now in possession of the seed of the woman, the Lord Jesus, as she now has given birth to the Savior. We're going to consider what God wants to teach Mary. There's so much that Mary doesn't know. You know, we were joking online for about a month about how terrible a hymn Mary Did You Know was. Of course Mary knew. An angel told her. And yet, and yet, there was much that Mary didn't know, and there was much that Mary needed to learn about her son. There was much that God needed to teach her if she was going to raise him as the Redeemer that God had brought him into her womb to be. And what I want us to consider this morning, I want us to consider first uh, what Mary needed to learn about the law-keeping of her seed, and then I want us to consider what she needed to learn about the salvation brought about by her seed, and then I want us to consider what she had to learn about the suffering of her seed. I want us to consider, first of all, the law-keeping. We'll notice verses 22 to 27, there is this recurrent theme. Here we are told that Jesus is being brought for the very first time to the temple. Now, that's significant because he is the Lord of the temple. Remember, he is the one when Solomon built that first temple, that the Lord came down in that cloud and filled the temple with his glory. And, and here, is, here is the Lord in the flesh. Here is the word made flesh, and he is being brought into the temple. 
It's significant that what God is going to reveal about him to Mary is going to happen in that place that in the Old Covenant God had designated to be that sacred space, that one place on all the face of the earth that in the Old Covenant he would dwell. And now he is coming to the temple. Remember, this is the temple from which God had departed in the days of Ezekiel. And, and when the glory departed in Ezekiel 1 through 11, God was saying he was not going to be with his people. He was not going to dwell with them anymore. And yet, you know that the prophets had said that the Lord again would come to his temple. And now here's the Lord being brought as an infant into the very place where he dwelt in the old covenant. And yet notice there's this recurrent theme throughout here. Notice verse 22 that the time for Mary's purification had come. Notice this phrase, according to the law of Moses. And then notice they brought Christ to present him to the Lord. Notice verse 23, as it is written, in the law of the Lord. And then notice verse 24, to offer a sacrifice to what is said. Notice the phrase, in the law of the Lord. And then notice verse 27. The parents brought the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law. Four times the law of Moses is mentioned. Now you are meant to ask the question, why? Um, You are meant to say, why is that repeated in here? Well, very simply, Christ was born an Israelite. And remember, he had to be born under the law. Paul will tell us this in Galatians 3, that Christ was born of a woman born under the law, that he might redeem us who were under the curse of the law. Remember, Israel had been under all those commandments God had given them, and and they had to be fulfilled. Someone had to keep them perfectly if you're going to be redeemed and if I'm going to be redeemed. And yet every generation of Israel failed to keep the law of Moses. Every generation broke the law to the point where the Apostle Paul has to explain later in the New Testament that no one is justified by law keeping. The law comes in to condemn us. The law comes in to tell us where we have failed. The law comes in to tell us that we need redemption. And yet someone has to keep the broken law of God. And It's fascinating, isn't it, that God, in his wisdom, put the Lord Jesus in the home of a godly young woman named Mary and her now husband, Joseph, who were going to do what God commanded in the law from the very birth of Jesus. And in so doing that, and you have to listen very carefully, in so doing that, Christ is keeping the law of Moses for you and me from his infancy. That's the point of Luke 2, 22 to 27. Jesus is keeping the law even as an infant for you and me. Now, there is in this incredible humiliation. Here is the God who gave the law. Here is the God who is above the law having to be put under the law. And you'll notice that as Luke tells us about the law-keeping of Christ, he first tells us about the purification of Moses and of Mary. And and in the law, um, every woman in Israel was commanded, and you have to listen very carefully, they were commanded to bring an offering to the Lord whenever they had a firstborn son because the child denoted uncleanness, 
uncleanness. So, so if you were an Israelite woman in the Old Covenant and you had a child, you were unclean because you just brought a sinner into the world. And that's why there needed to be a sacrifice. And Mary is coming to bring a sacrifice according to the law of Moses as if she was unclean, even though she has just brought the Holy One into the world. You see the humiliation that Christ had to endure for us. You see, in going low, he had to put himself in the place of sinners under the law. And, and, and he does so, and this is magnificent, he puts himself in the lowest place possible. Because notice, notice verse 24, she came to sacrifice according to what was said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now, if you went back, you would find that there was a provision that those that were not wealthy enough to bring a proper sacrifice could bring this subsidiary sac sacrifice. And, and what we're being told is that Christ isn't just born under the law, but he's born into the, the most poverty imaginable that Mary can't even afford to make a proper sacrifice for him. She has to have this sort of, um, she has to have this provisional sacrifice made. You see how low the Son of God went in, in being born in the lowest place possible. But notice, notice there's more. There's more about the humility in him being born under the law. Notice that, that we're told also that he is having to be presented before the Lord. Notice verse 23. Every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And so, so in, in the Passover, that firstborn was to be set apart to God. And so even as Mary is bringing the sacrifice for herself, even as she is coming to do according to all that the law is written, she is coming to bring her son to set him apart. And notice this, and this is magnificent. You might miss this. Notice that she is coming. She is coming to do according to him for all that is according to the custom of the law, and she is coming to have him circumcised. Go back to verse 21. Notice this, at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Now, I don't know if you've ever thought about this, the humiliation that Christ endured included the one who has the name above every name going nameless for the first week of his life. Think about that. For seven days, he didn't even have a name. That's how low the sun wore it. And, and then he took to himself the sign of circumcision. Now, circumcision was a sign that said, I need to have my heart cleansed from the filth of the flesh by a bloody judgment. That's what it pointed to. It went in that place that denoted that corruption passed from generation to generation. It, it said that what comes from sinners is sinners and that they need their heart cleansed. And think about this. The Son of God took to himself on the eighth day, he took to himself a sign that he would have to carry around in his body for 30-some years that said, I need corruption cleansed when his heart was perfectly pure and holy and sinless. Because he is standing in the place of sinners. 
and he is putting himself under the law of God for sinners like us. That's amazing. Um, Mary and Joseph are being used by God to assist the Son of God to fulfill what he came into the world to do. Don't miss that. We don't just look at the cross to see the work of redemption. We look at what's happening here in the temple on the eighth day as the Lord is being brought into the temple. Now, I want us to consider that there is a direct correlation between the blood that Jesus sheds in his circumcision and the blood he sheds on the cross. John Owen, the Puritan theologian, put it this way. He said, Every act of Christ's obedience from the blood of his circumcision to the blood of his cross was attended with suffering so that the whole of his life might be called a death. It's the same blood that he sheds in his circumcision, that he sheds on the cross to atone for his people, so that all of his life from his birth to his death can be called suffering and death. Think about that. The entirety of his life is shrouded in humiliation for sinners like us. Isaac Ambrosi, another Puritan theologian, put it this way. He said, There was no impurity in the Son of God, yet he is first circumcised, then he is brought and offered to the Lord. He came to be sin for us. He would in our persons be legally unclean that by satisfying the law, he might take away our uncleanness. Isn't that amazing? He is keeping the law so that he'll be able to take away our uncleanness on the cross. He'll keep every commandment of God sinlessly his entire life from his circumcision to his death. And this is why Paul can say he was obedient to the point of death, even to the death of the cross. Now, why is that good news for you? Because we are so disobedient by nature. And on Judgment Day, unless we have someone who has stood in our place and not only died for us, but who has obeyed for us, we will never be accepted. The gospel is that from his birth to his resurrection, Jesus' entire life is a life of law-keeping, satisfaction, and suffering for us. Now, I noted to you that this is for Mary, and I don't know that Mary understands anything at this point as she ought to, and yet as she comes into that temple, now she's going to have that encounter first with Simeon and then with the aged Anna, and and notice as she is doing this, notice verse 27, uh, he, he came, verse, I'm sorry, verse Uh, 25, now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. This man was righteous and devout. That just means that he was God-fearing, and he sought to do those things that were pleasing to the Lord. It doesn't mean sinless, or else his entire song is meaningless, because he's going to sing about salvation and prophesy about what Christ has come to do for sinners. But he is righteous and devout. Notice this, he is waiting for the consolation of Israel— and the Holy Spirit was upon him. Now, we don't know anything about Simeon. We don't know what tribe he's from. He's not called a priest. 
We don't know anything about his life before this, and the only thing we know about him after this is that he knew he could die in peace. The one thing that we do know is that at some point in his life, the Holy Spirit had in a special way revealed to him that he would not die before he saw the Lord's Christ. He was given a special pledge that with his own eyes, he was going to see the Savior of the world. And at this moment, and maybe he had waited 80 years, maybe it had been 20 years, maybe it had been 40 years, we don't know, but at this very moment, as he is in the temple and coming to the temple, Mary is in the temple, and God is going to fulfill what he promised to Simeon in showing him the Savior with his own eyes, and and then he is going to make that great prophetic utterance while he holds the infant Jesus in his arms, And that utterance is going to be for Mary, and that utterance is going to be for us. Now, I want to say this first by way of introduction. I imagine if we were all in the temple that day, and we saw Mary and Joseph making their way up the steps to bring Jesus into the temple, that not one of us would stop and think there was something special about that beggar baby. We would see a peasant woman, young woman in her teens, with her young poor husband and her beggar baby, and we wouldn't think one thing about it. Um, And yet, Simeon, and this is what theologians have called the nunc dimittis, the now Lord in Latin, says this, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. You see, Simeon sees in this child all of the rest of redemptive history and all of the rest of human history, and he sees in this child that he is the hope of the salvation of all mankind, not just of Jews, but of Gentiles like us. Uh, Martin Luther has this really profound statement about this. Listen to this. He says, Simeon has a very penetrating eye. He said, in this child, there's no kingly garb, no royal garb to see, merely the form of a poor beggar. The mother is poor. The child is wrapped in poor swaddling clothes. Nevertheless, Simeon comes right up and without anyone's testimony, publicly attest this is the Savior of the world, a light to the Gentiles. Luther said by reason judgment, he would have had to say, this is no king, but a beggar child. But he does not allow his reason to judge by what his eyes behold. He denominates this child as a king greater than all the kings in the world. Think about that. He sees far past what his eyes can see. Now, why is that instructive to Mary? That's instructive to Mary because Mary needed to hear that. Mary was going to have to see how despised her son would be throughout his entire ministry. Mary would see how he was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. She would see that her own other children wouldn't believe in him during the better part of his ministry. She would see that, that he was hated by the religious establishment, and so she needed to hear 
um, this prophetic utterance that this is a king greater than all the kings of the world, that he is the light to, the, to Israel and, and to the Gentiles. But I think it's also a word to us, and I want to I press this on you this morning. You know, Christ is just as despised today as he was in the days of his ministry. And the great challenge that we have as Christians is to be assured in our souls that he is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, that even now as we do not see him, we believe on him, we love him, we know that he sits at the right hand of the Father, we know that he is the ruler of the kings of the earth, we know that he is the savior of the world, we know that he has done everything that God said that he was going to do, and that we would see him with the eyes of faith the way Simeon saw him with the eyes of faith. Now, it also means for us, and this is the most important part of what Simeon says, that apart from him, we cannot die in peace. That apart from knowing that we are trusting in Christ, we cannot die in peace. Simeon actually says, notice this verse 29, Now, Lord, you are letting your servant depart in peace. Simeon has been made deeply assured of the fact that God has sent the Savior to bring about peace for the souls of men and women who deserve judgment. Simeon's going to say this later on. He's going to say, notice verse 34, he says to Mary, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. You see, he doesn't just say, and this is a danger, and you have to listen carefully because we come to Christmas, and we love songs about joy and peace, and, and the whole world has a sort of universalistic view of Christ, Christmas. That's, that's not how Christ works. He is both for the falling and the rising of many. He's a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. He is also the precious cornerstone. And, and notice what Simeon says here. In verse 35, he says, he is going to cause the thoughts of many hearts to be laid bare, to be revealed. Um, and yet, Simeon could say, because he's seen with the eyes of faith Christ, he says, now you're letting your servant depart in peace. You know, I was meditating on this this week, and I thought, there is one other person in the gospel records who is saying what Simeon is saying before he dies, and that is the thief on the cross. Here, the thief on the cross is nailed to the tree for the evil that he's done, and, and Christ is nailed to the tree next to him. And instead of seeing with the eyes of the flesh a crucified traitor king, he says, Lord, remember me, when you come into your kingdom. Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He sees what Simeon sees. He sees with the eyes of faith. And he essentially says, if you will but remember me, I can die in peace. No, you may not like to hear this. This is going to matter on your deathbed. This is going to matter on my deathbed. Because the day is coming when all of us will be at the very brink of eternity, and this is the only thing that matters. 
None of your experiences, none of your joys, none of your sorrows, none of your laughter, none of your possessions, none of your status, nothing will matter but this. Christ was given so that we can be assured that we can die in peace and go to be with him in glory. And that means we have to see him with the eyes of faith. Now, there's another figure here. And she also is a mysterious figure. Notice verse 36, just briefly, there is this woman, Anna, a prophetess. We don't know much about her except she was a widow, either until she was 84 or for 84 years, but but it was a long period of time. She's lived as a widow, and she was a godly woman. She didn't depart from the temple night and day, worshiping and fasting and worshiping the Lord, praising God, and, and, and she doesn't actually ever say anything. She's also there in the temple when Mary brings in the infant Jesus, and, and we don't know one thing that she says, but what we know is that she does two things in response to seeing the Lord Jesus. Number one, notice verse 38, she gives thanks to God. And then notice verse number two, She went and spoke of him to everyone who was looking for redemption in Jerusalem. Now, she is instructive to us when we think about Christ, when we think about God bringing his eternal son into the world as an infant. We think about what that means in light of what Simeon has said. The right response is for us to thank God and for us to commit ourselves to speaking of him to other believers. Now, we don't know how many believers there would have been in Israel in those days, but I'm going to venture to say it was very small because the prophets say that it was always just a remnant within the church. Isaiah said, if God had not left us a remnant, we would have become like Sodom and Gomorrah that most of the Old Covenant church didn't believe, they weren't looking, they weren't seeking. Isaiah will say in Isaiah 53, Lord, who has believed our report? And the answer very simply is not many. And yet here is this woman, Anna, spending her life waiting for the coming of the Redeemer, worshiping God in the temple, and she knows where the other believers are. And the first thing she does, and let me just press this on you, she doesn't go and start witnessing to unbelievers. As important as that is, She finds other believers, and she talks about him with them. Now, there is a huge word there for us. Our conversation as believers should be full of talking about Christ, who he is, what he's done, what he's done for us, what he's doing for us and in us, how God is giving us greater desires to follow him and trust him. And you know what happens? It's interesting. The more we do that, it's this thing that happens. The more we get in the habit of naturally talking about the Lord Jesus, the more we are thankful to God and the more we want to tell others about him. Um, It's interesting. Here's a widow. She's been through a life of trial and disappointment and suffering, and she's not bitter. She's not bitter. Eighty-some years, potentially, she's lived as a widow, 
and yet she has allowed herself to be sanctified under those trials in hoping for the coming redemption that now she sees and then becomes an example to Mary and to us of who this child is and what he came to do. Notice, I just want to note as we bring this to a close this morning that Mary and Joseph are keeping all these things. They're, they're treasuring all these things in their hearts. They're, they're wondering at what has been said about Christ. Um, I want to say thirdly and finally, this is going to lead Mary to understand that what her son came to do was to suffer. Notice what Simeon said to her in verse 35. He says to Mary, a sword will pierce through your own soul also. Simeon's saying, your child came to suffer, and Mary is going to realize that. When 30-some years from now, she's going to stand at the foot of the cross, and she's going to have to watch her firstborn son bleed to death, be mocked, be scourged, be spit upon, be derided, to fall under the wrath of God, for sinners like us, and Simeon says to her, your son has come to suffer. He must suffer, and that means we must make a beeline from the narrative about the birth of Jesus to the foot of the cross and say, do I really know why he came into this world, and do I really believe that he had to suffer for me? Um, That's that's what the message of Christmas is about. That's what the message of the birth of the seed of the woman is about. I want to ask you this morning, as you think about the Lord Jesus and you think about your need for him, have you ever come to a place where you've really recognized that you not only need him to hang on the cross for you, you needed him to live every second of his life as a representative for you? keeping the law of God for you in order to justify you, to give you his obedient record, to impute to you his righteousness, because that is so much the center of the good news. That is the epicenter of the gospel. Then I want to ask you if you've come to see with the eyes of faith what Simeon has seen and what Anna saw, that he is a savior, that he is greater than all the kings of the world, that he is a light to the Gentiles, that every single man and woman and boy and girl will either fall or rise because of him. Then I want to ask you finally, if you have recognized that he had to suffer for your sin on the cross, that's that is also the center of the gospel. It's the center of the message of Christmas. It's the good news. The Lord Jesus came as an infant, to begin the work of redemption that he would accomplish when he hung on the cross for us as a man, even as the God-man. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear this morning what the Spirit says to the church. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we do thank you and praise you for the great truths that you have given to us about your Son. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you humbled yourself to such an extent that you put yourself not only in the womb of the virgin, but that you put yourself under 
the very law that you gave in order to redeem us from the curse of the law. We thank you that you humbled yourself in taking the sign of circumcision, that you humbled yourself in going nameless, that you humbled yourself in being born of a poor peasant virgin. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are, even in your great poverty, greater than all the kings of the earth, a savior to the Gentiles. We pray that you would stir up our hearts and minds this morning. We pray that we would leave this place knowing that we can depart in peace because our eyes have seen the salvation that you, Lord, have prepared from all eternity, even that you have fulfilled in Jesus Christ. We pray these things in his name. Amen.